Okay, good morning. How's everybody today? All right. I'm glad you're here today joining us. Let's open up our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. For those of you that have been with us for some time, you know that we've been going through the uh, the entire New Testament here now for several years. Uh, we did 1 Thessalonians already, and we we're now into 2 Thessalonians. And after the Thessalonians, we will be going into uh, Timothy. And so, in this portion of Scripture, as I mentioned before, we have the command of Paul talking to the people in Thessalonica. He's writing this letter to them because of their, uh, well, their fear. They're afraid. They're scared. There are things that are going on in their life. They're, they don't understand what's happening as, as far as the persecution is involved. Paul has already written to them once before, and we talked about that last week, about the rapture and uh, those that have died in Christ first. Uh, they should be raptured or taken up first and foremost, and then those of us who are left behind, we will be caught up in the air. Now, the, as I mentioned before, it, it's it's God's timing in how we've been going through the books uh, and the chapters and the verses, and it just so happened to fall during the time of the the invasion of uh, uh, of Israel that, and and what was going on there. And the, one of the first things that people say is, is you know, well, the, these are wars and rumors of wars, and and a lot of this has to deal with. Um, with with the uh, <clears throat> with Israel and the people of of God, and so naturally people get scared, or not scared, but worried. They start wondering, okay, is this now the time? Is this now the time? Now you've heard me say this many times before, and I will not get tired of saying it, and I'll continue to say it. That the very first sign that Jesus Christ says in Matthew twenty four, when they ask him, tell us, tell us what's going to happen, what's going to take place first and foremost, and uh, the very first thing, as Paul even says here in. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And Paul then finishes off this portion that we're going to be reading today. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Father in heaven, once again, we come before you, recognizing your word is true. And your word is, is it, it, it's, there is no error. It's inerrant. And it continues on. And there, there are no, uh, no mistakes in its truth and all its components, and all that you say, Lord. And I know that many times people have taken your word and used it for their own vain glory. And I pray today, Lord, that we can be as authentic and as original and as, as, uh, and as true to your word as it is intended to be read and preached. And so, Lord, help us to go through this portion of Scripture and see what it is that uh, you are showing us and how it is that we ought to prepare ourselves for that final day that when uh, you shall return. So thank you, Father, once again as you lead us in all things, in Jesus' name. Amen. The very first thing, you know, by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and take one of the Pew Bibles out, and we are on page, if, if you're uh, using the Pew Bible, page 989, uh, 2 Thessalonians. And uh, if you if you like to, if, you know, go back and listen to the messages that we've had so far, uh, it's all been leading up to this point. It's all been leading up to where we're at today in history as well as where we're at today in Scripture. And so there is this fear, you know, that this, the second coming is, is already here. But as I mentioned before, the second coming and the rapture are two separate events. They're not the same event. 
it, it's not the rapture and the second coming together. I know there's some people that, that believe that. What happened? Oh. Okay. I hope it's not falling down. <laughs> thought you were interrupting me for something else. But it's okay. Thank you, brother, for keeping a year off of that. And so the, the rapture and the second coming are two separate events. And as we have seen and we have heard it, uh, you have heard it uh, preached from here, that the rapture happens seven years before the end time. So there are some people that believe that the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation, and some people believe that it happens after the tribulation. But once the rapture happens, that's when the time clock starts ticking away for the seven-year tribulation to take place. Now, the people in 1 Thessalonians, the same people that Paul wrote to, they were concerned, saying, well, what about if the rapture happens, what about those that have died, our loved ones, our, my mom, my dad, my brother, my kids? Well, what about them? You know, if, if God, if Jesus Christ returns and raptures us out of here, how is it that uh, they're going to get raptured if they're, if they're no longer here? And Jesus says to them, if you remember, I don't want you to be concerned. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to understand that those who have died in Christ, they shall be lifted up first. Now, Paul was not teaching a theology or a doctrine on the rapture. He was teaching a practice practical message saying, you don't need to worry and be concerned about the things that are to come. As a matter of fact, in this portion of scripture, when we're going to get into the Antichrist or the lawless one, Paul is not teaching the sensationalism that you hear a lot of churches preach. He's not teaching all this uh, all this hype about the second coming. He, he's, he's trying to calm their fears and trying to share with them, these things have to happen first before the end of, the, of time comes, before the coming of the Lord. And so as Paul is trying to pastor this church that he's so far removed from, he's trying to pastor them in love and in concern, but also with information, information that God himself has given him, that Jesus Christ has revealed this to Paul, and Paul wrote it down, sent it to the people in Thessalonica, and now they are reading it. In the same manner, beloved, this is not intended to frighten you. This is not intended to scare you. This is not intended, and it should not. Uh, anybody that tries to do so guilt you into becoming a Christian or guilt you into going to church or guilt you into giving your money to church. Whatever the case may be, this is for information, but it's to comfort you. It's to encourage you. It's to build you up, not to knock you down. Now, from this, we do get the doctrine and the teaching, the theology of, of the rapture. We get the doctrine and teaching of the second coming. But there really isn't much on, except for 2 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians, as we've already been through, 15, uh, on the rapture and how it happens. All the signs point to the end. And we've been identifying many of the signs that have already come up. But all the signs point to the end time. Everything that Jesus Christ has talked about, everything that the prophet Daniel has talked about, that Ezekiel has talked about, everything that the book of Revelation talks about is pointing to the end time. Now, there are a lot of things that have already unfolded that helps us to realize that the time is short. One of the biggest things is, as you've heard me say before, that Israel became a nation in 1948. Now, for 1,900 years, as they were proclaiming the gospel, they kept saying that the, that the nation has to be plundered, it has to be invaded, and, and you think about all that time, for 19, almost 2,000 years, you have this prophecy that is prophesying uh, against Israel and all this trouble they're going to go through. However, they didn't have a homeland. They didn't have anything to call home. They were scattered all over the place. And so many skeptics would say, how is that going to happen? How is, you know, Israel doesn't even have their own nation. How, how is that supposed to unfold for 1,900 years? But 
people and scholars and those that were studying the Bible, they looked at this and they said, it's got to happen. It's got to. Israel has to come back. Israel has to come back. And in 1948, they became a nation. The clock started ticking. And so the very first war, of course, there was a lot of people that were living there. There were Muslims, there were Jews, there were Christians. And so as Israel got the nation back, they says, you know, Muslims, you stay here and keep your temple, which is right now on the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is in East Jerusalem. And so they said, you guys can keep the temple here. We want to keep the peace. Christians, you can keep your cathedrals and churches here. You can keep them there. And Jews, of course, your synagogues and whatnot. But the Jewish people always knew that the temple had to be rebuilt as what they wanted to do. But they couldn't because the place where the temple needs to be rebuilt, the Dome of the Rock is sitting there. The Dome of the Rock is the mosque that Muslims use to pray. It's their most sacred place. And so we'll talk some more about that here in just a bit. And so that's the first thing that started to unfold. Many things started to unfold after that, uh, that Israel had to become a nation. There had to be these wars and there had to be all these other things. And now as things are rapidly coming to, coming to fruition, maybe some of you have been keeping up, with the news on the on what's going on in Israel and how Hezbollah and how it is now involved as, as far as as well as uh, you know Hamas and and how Iran wants to get involved in Russia and and all these nations that are supposedly part of the end times and uh, and so all these signs that are starting to come up now they're starting to the focus and point toward the end time the only thing that doesn't have a sign before it happens is the rapture now if our calculations are correct, and we're not trying to calculate anything, <laughs> you know, but we, we understand that the rapture happens seven years before the end time, before the, it happens right before the tribulation starts. And if all the tribulation is happening right now, and everything is pointing to the end, and I've said this before, do the math. There is no sign. As a matter of fact, the rapture is a sign. And so the people in Thessalonica, they were concerned. They were worried. As a matter of fact, as we read last week, uh, let me go back to verses 1 through 3. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Unfortunately, we don't have that letter. Unfortunately, we don't know exactly what Paul was talking about, but it had to do with something that the day of the Lord has come. And it had to do with something, it had to do something with their being nervous and shaken, is what Paul is saying. Don't be quickly shaken, or don't be uh, in, in your mind, or alarmed. Don't be afraid, don't be, don't fear. And we went over this here a few weeks ago. And, and so something was written, or stated, or said, and as a matter of fact, it was even stated in such a way that they said, Paul said this. And Paul had to write another letter, said, look, I, I didn't write that letter, that's not me. Don't be quickly shaken, or alarmed. Because I didn't write that. You know, I've told you this already before. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. There are five things, well, actually four things that need to happen before all this comes to fruition. Four things that need to take place uh, before Jesus Christ returns. Very first thing, number one, a great deception. A great deception. Let no one deceive you in any way, he says. And this deception, this turning your mind in such a way that causes you to look at something what really isn't. And, and this deception, as I've said before, is not a deception of the world. The world is totally deceived right now, by the way. Okay? The world is totally deceived. They're blinded. They can't see. The world is, is just gone off on its own. And God says, if that's what you want to do, Romans chapter 1 says, you know, he hands, he hands them over. 
He hands them over to their own perversities and their own sin and their own lusts and their own depravity. If that's what you want to do, God says, go ahead and continue doing it. Because, you know, this is not what I have, I have commanded you to do. You are to follow the Lord God. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And as we love God with our mind, as we look at the scriptures, we love God with our heart and we sing praises and worship him. As we love God with our soul, it becomes everything that we are and the way we live our lifestyle and our lifestyle, the way we walk. But the most important thing is to know what it is that you know. And you cannot know by people telling you what it, what it is that you should know or picking it up from the radio or picking it up from the TV or picking it up from other pastors. It comes from here. And I have a Bible in the pews for you with, with uh, page numbers that correspond to the page that I'm at. And I want you to take that and read it and write it down. I give you notes, take it home, study it, look at it, because these aren't words that I'm giving you. These are words from God. And my responsibility is to give it to you as, as clearly and as effectively as possible and to have you see what, Paul, what God is saying. Here Paul is talking to us about. And, and so the, the one thing that's happening right now is a great deception. As a matter of fact, when Jesus Christ was asked, What's, what, are, what are the signs? And he says, well, the first thing you need to understand is do not be deceived. That was the, before the wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the famines, and all these other things. Before anything, Jesus says, do not be, don't let yourself be deceived. And deception and, de- and deceiving and false prophets and false apostles are all throughout the Bible. And I'm not going to apologize for continually coming back and sharing that with you and telling you this because every book of the Bible, except for Philemon, every book of the Bible has something to do with the deception, false prophets, false apostles, uh, liars, cheaters, people that want to gain on their, on the gospel of God. And so you're going to hear me say this over and over and over again. Because unfortunately, as I said, there's a big deception and it's not in the world. The deception is in the church. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what Jesus Christ is talking about. This is what uh, these false, they're false apostles. They're false prophets. Prophets of who? Of prophets of God. And so we have to be careful because he tells the people in 2 Thessalonians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. He says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You know, Satan is not going to come to you with the pitchfork, fangs, hooves, red, you know, these horns. He's not going to come to you all in red and tell you, give me your soul. I want to destroy your life. I want to take your heart out of your chest and I want to just chew it up and I want to just spit it out and I just want to stomp on it and I just want to destroy you with all that I can, all that I have. And after I come, after I finish with you, I'm going after your children. He does not say that. Because if he were to come to you that way, would you say, okay, Satan, sure. No. He de- he's very deceiving. Very, he's an angel of light. He makes himself to be beautiful. He came to Eve in the same way. Look, and, and, and questions the authority that you've learned from God's word. And he questions you and he says, are you really saved? Do you really, do you really believe God? Is this really something that you want to follow? I mean, how can all this stuff really happen? Are you sure? God really didn't say that, did he? 
Didn't he say, he didn't say that you can't eat from any fruit of the tree. And of course, what we do is we argue, oh, no, no, no. He, he said, yeah, yeah, no, he, he didn't say, uh, we can eat of the fruit. We can't, we can. it's just that one. Uh, we can't, you can't eat it or touch it, which God never said don't touch it. But we add to God's word. And if we eat it or if we touch it, the, uh, God said that we will die. And what's the first thing Satan says? You're not going to die. Come on. Really? You're going to die if you eat of that fruit? You're going to die if you smoke that joint? You're going to die if you take that drink? You're going to die if you sleep with that person that you really, really love? You're going to die if you have sex outside of marriage? You're going to die if you have an affair with another woman because she's beautiful, she wants you? You're, gonna, you're not going to die. That's the lie. And the deception comes in very sneakily. And Satan comes at you as this angel of light. And Paul is warning us. He says, you know what? And it's no wonder. It's no wonder that his servants come to you in the same way. It's no wonder that they come with you with, with this beautiful talk and this flowery speech and this ability to persuade and to soothe and to bring you in. No wonder. And it's not talking about just any church or any pastor or just one, but it's talking about people that are intentionally, intentionally coming at you wanting to deceive you. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. In Romans 16, 18, it says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.13, While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In uh, 2 John one one seven, he says this: For many deceivers have have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. As a matter of fact, John is the first person, well, the only one that calls the antichrist the antichrist. He identifies him as such. We'll see that here in just a little bit. First John two twenty six. He says this, and this is not in your outlines, but is the verse that I have here as well. I write these things to you about the one of those who are trying to deceive you. John was so on it. He says it again in First uh, John three seven. Little children, let no one deceive you. Who practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. This deception, this deceiving, is part of the rebellion of the things that are taking place, and they take place within the church. People come in. To the church. And they, they say great things, they say good things, and all of a sudden they start deceiving and saying things that somehow just don't align with, align with Scripture, but it feels good. And it really feels, but I feel, the moment somebody says, I feel, be careful. I think, I don't care what you think, what does the Bible say? I feel, you know, I hate to hurt your feelings, but I'm going to hurt your feelings. <laughs> because what does the Bible say? And there are certain things that we are very stuck on and, and strong and hard on because of what the word says that most of other churches will just say, well, you know, that was written so long ago. It was written such a long time ago. It's ancient. It's dead letter. You don't want to listen to dead letter. You need a fresh word. Beloved, that's when the deception starts to come. Every cult, every, uh, non-Christian, non-based cult that, that has ever started, all they all started with God said to me. I heard God speak to me. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, Muhammad, you know, I, God spoke to me. And from there it just goes on. If God spoke to you, then it must be true. And how do we authenticate that? How do we know? 
The way you know is if you know God's word. See, God does speak, but he speaks right here. Right here, this is where God is speaking. And so everything that's been happening, everything that's been going on, one of the first things he says, you know, do not be deceived. You know, because I want you to understand that there is this deception. And not only that, there's this rebellion that's coming in. Number two, before the day of the Lord comes, that's Jesus Christ returning after the seven-year tribulation, bringing with him the saints that he has raptured and, and resurrected from the dead, a great rebellion is going to come. For that day will not come, Paul says. I don't want you guys to be worried about this. You guys are really worried, and you're worrying me that, that you're hearing these. I told you, and I've shared these things with you already, that that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. There's a rebellion that's going to take place. And this rebellion, uh, it, it's, it's a word that a lot that some of your Bibles might have uh, in there. It's called an apostasy. It comes from the Greek word apostasia. And apostasia is the word apostasy or this, this rebellion is basically what it is, a revolt. Uh, in, in the New Testament, it appears uh, with, the, with, uh, with Paul, he is revolting against the law of Moses. And they call him an apostate because of what he's doing. But, but the word apostasy is from the Greek word apostasia, which means a defiance of an established system or authority a rebellion, an abandonment of, of breach of faith. In the first century world, apostasy was a technical term for political revolt or defection is what it was. You were, you were part of this system, you didn't like the political system, and you rebelled against the system. Apostasy the, is in the Bible and a faith are those that are within the church, they know the word, they hear the word, they, they listen to the word, they've actually lived the word, and one day they say, you know what, I just don't want it anymore. You know, you know this is just, it's, it's, it's not working in my life. And I've tried it for all these years, and no longer do I want to do this anymore. And so therefore, they just wash their hands of it. And on top of that, they turn around and they talk bad about that group, about that, those people, or about those that are, they're going up against, whether it's a political system. In this case, Paul is referring to the church itself. And the forms of apostasy, we have to identify it because this is something that's going to happen. We have to identify people that are going up against God's word. If God's word says it, then I've got to believe it. That's all there is to it. Whether I believe it or not, I accept it. And there's some things that sometimes I, I scratch my head at. Really? Uh, you're saying that, Lord? Uh, one, one, one verse that we've been studying, we've been going over, when Jesus is praying in the upper room, and he's talking to the Father in John 17, the high priestly prayer. He says, Father, I am not praying for the world. I'm only praying for those that you've sent me to come rescue, to come get. I'm only praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. And we had to go over that quite a bit and understand, okay, what is he trying to say here? I thought, for God so loved the world. Why wouldn't he pray for the world? Why wouldn't he, you know, lift up the world? Well, this high priestly prayer, if you remember correctly, is on John 17, the night before he gets executed. And so there's some things that sometimes we scratch our heads at. And why is that even in the Bible? What is he trying to say? And so we, we want to take it all according to what John is saying. And then everything else that's happening in the upper room from 14, 15, 16, and 17. And, and we put it all together and we start to realize, okay, here's what he's saying. Here's what he's going through. So, so there's, there's people that will get up and say, you know, I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that whatever the case may be. And they become apostate. And it comes in various forms. Two types of falling away from key and true doctrines of the Bible to heretical teachings that claim to be real or the real Christian doctrine. Or a second thing that happens is a complete rejection of the Christian faith, which results in full abandonment of Christ. They just abandon Christ and say, you know what? And some of you have probably, I've, I've had this asked, uh, question asked 
of me a lot of times and they come up to me and says, what about, you know, uh, so-and-so, my brother, my uncle, my, you know, I, I knew a pastor, man. He was just, you know, he was just on fire, reaching people. And all of a sudden he's back in the world again. You know, did he backslide? Well, John tells us in First John, he says, you know, one of the reasons they're not of us, one of the reasons they went out from us is because they were never of us. One of the reasons they're easily going back because they've they've turned apostate. They're, they're just uh, there's this apostasy that's happening. Now, this is the action of the church that is to take place before the day of the Lord, before the Antichrist is even revealed, before the tribulation starts. Now, I've I've heard this from some other churches and pastors. What they share and they they proclaim is that is that right before Jesus comes, there's going to be this huge revival. People are going to be coming to church. Churches are going to get filled, and, and uh, it's just going to be uh, something very miraculous. And then Jesus Christ will come and bring up his church. I've been reading a lot of this on Facebook, a lot of these uh, revivals that are going on throughout the world and campuses and whatnot. However, that's not what Paul is preaching here. He says, no, as a matter of fact, this is just the opposite. There's going to be an apostasy. There's going to be a rebellion. People are going to fly away from the church. They're either going to do so by rejecting the doctrines of the Bible and building their own doctrines, or they're just going to flat out say, you know, I don't believe anymore. And this is what's happening. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, one, two, uh, verses 1 and 2, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons now beloved this angel of light that is within the church they're they're going to start teaching and preaching which is already happening now in many nations in many places there's people throughout southern california in a church where the pastor continually says that he is the christ he is jesus and the church is growing and booming and people are flocking to the churches and just recently, there was a documentary on this, uh, one of the pastors here from L.A., and, and he was arrested for child abuse and uh, sexual molestation of the people, the women, and, and it's just, but people still love him because he's the Messiah. They've given him a pass. And well, I, I don't know how it is that people can be so deceived, but it's within the church. As a matter of fact, Jude, if you want to know what an apostate looks like, read the book of Jude. The book of Jude is only one chapter. It's really not that long. And he says in, in chapter 1 or verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The grace of God cannot be perverted, should not be perverted. See, God's grace, grace basically means that you're getting something that you don't deserve. You don't deserve this, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. Grace is unmerited favor. In other words, you can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't come to church enough for it. You can't do anything for it. God, through his merciful love, gives you grace and saves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. That's why it is called amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a a wrecked wretch, a wretch like me, I was once blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was in such a, a dis- distorted mess. God reached down and he grabbed me out of that pit. Not because I deserved it, not because I wanted it, not because of anything else, but because of his amazing grace. 
You see, and people are perverting that by saying, oh, the only way you can be saved is if you do so many, uh, make so many prayers, you knock on so many doors, or you, you can't get saved unless you, you, uh, do some very hyper spiritual stuff. You know, you can't, and, and they pervert the grace of God by adding man's requirements. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation only comes because it is by grace that you're saved through faith, Paul says to the people in Ephesians, not by works. As a matter of fact, one of the verses that we've been looking at, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, and um, we'll get it up here on the screen as well. But in John chapter 1, that's on page uh, 886, it's verses 12 and 13. And it says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, and what John is saying is, is you know, you, you, if you receive him, if you, and, and if you believe in his name, then you can become a child of God. Not everyone is a child of God. John will later, later tell us that Jesus himself says to the Pharisees, you're not children of God. You're not children of Abraham. You're children of the devil. We're very clear on this, is that the Bible teaches that there's children of God and there's children of the devil. Now, everyone is created by God, and therefore we're all God's creation. And God does love the world. He doesn't, doesn't want anyone to perish. But it's unfortunate that that's going to happen. And so what John is saying here is that you have to believe. And so you have to ask the question, well, what about the demons? The Bible says the demons believe. Are, are they going to be saved? And so there's got to be a little bit more to it than this. What kind of belief is he talking about? And then he goes on to, and he qualifies this in verse 13. Uh, first of all, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And God gives the right to those who believe in his name, who were born, not physically born, but spiritually born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. First and foremost, that you were, that a person that is, that it has the, as a child of God, they're not born by blood. In other words, it's not your lineage. You cannot be saved because your mama was saved and because your daddy was a pastor or your daddy was a deacon. Uh, or, you know, you can't be saved. Your children can't be saved because you're involved in church and you read and you pray. You know, it's not, it's not in the lineage. It's not because of who you are. And somehow, somewhere, everyone kind of believes this at the end of life. And, and uh, you know, well, you know, they went to church, so therefore they're in heaven. You know, their mama was a Christian. Mama always prayed for them, so they're, they're, therefore they're in heaven. Everybody ends up in heaven somehow. And John is very clear on this. He says, no, it's not because of what you were born, or because of the will of the flesh. In other words, it's not by what you do, by your body, your flesh, and how you're working for it. It's not by going to church. It's not by attending, uh, preaching. If that, it doesn't make me saved. Because I preach. I preach because I'm saved. Doesn't make me saved because I go visit people in the hospitals. I go visit in the hospital because I'm saved. And those things, those are the outpouring fruits of what salvation means. And John is saying here, he says, you know, it's not by your lineage. It's not by what you do. As a matter of fact, uh, it's not by the, the works that you do, nor of the will of man. It's not your will. It's not your free will. You don't just get up one day and choose. I choose God today. You don't just get up. It's not because of your will. It's not because of blood. It's not because of uh, the flesh, your work. It's not because of what you do. It's only by God. Now, John goes on to explain this a little bit more to Nicodemus as Jesus explains it to Nicodemus in chapter 3. Nicodemus comes up to Jesus and says, man, you're, you're, you're awesome. 
All the things that you're doing are great, man. I mean, nobody can do these things unless you come from God. And Jesus turns it around and tells them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, no one can see. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless what? You are born again. That's why they call us born agains. You can't even begin to fathom what the kingdom of God is. You know, you might have heard about it. You might have, you know, well, yeah, I'd like to be a part of that. But until you are born again, and he goes on to explain it, not by, not by uh, the will, because Nicodemus asked the same question that some of you might be asking, well, how, how can I be born again? You know, do I, and he asked, do I have to go back into my mother's womb and come back out a child or what? And Jesus says, don't you get it? No, it's by water, by spirit. It's by God himself. The wind blows and no one knows where it's coming from. It, it, does, it just happens. Just like you had nothing to do with your own birth, to whom you were going to be born, when you were going to be born, how you were going to be born. God, individually, what he does is he says, I'm taking you. I'm taking you. And the proper thing to do is to respond to that by saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I'm, I'm a wretch. And I, I can't stand here and tell you that I, I don't deserve, the only thing I deserve, according to Scripture, the only thing I deserve is everlasting damnation because of the sin that was committed by me. But that sin was covered by Jesus Christ. And because I understood that Jesus Christ took my sin, I live my life differently now. The fruit of repentance. Jesus didn't come forth and, and he didn't come out saying, you know, here's the four, four laws, four spiritual laws. Here's the Roman road. Here's the ABCs of salvation. Here is what you need to know to get saved. No, he said, you know what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, repent. Repent. That's it. It was a command, not a suggestion, not, a de- not something that you can think about or even debate or have a Bible study over. Repent. Turn away from what you're doing and chase after God is exactly what he said from that point forward. And John is full of, uh, you know, the, 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 the teachings of, of Jesus and, and what it is that he wanted us to do. And, and so there is this false, there's this false deception. There's a deception going on. There's an apostasy going on as, uh, as Jude has just told us. And the, the th- third thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a great revealing. There's going to be a great revealing. You know, going back to our, our lesson here on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. In only one other place is somebody called the son of destruction, and that was Judas. Some of your Bibles might say the son of perdition, which is the same thing, the son of destruction. And this revealing is going to be given out. We're not going to see it today, but when we come back next week, um, in, in verse 8, it says this, if you're still there in 2 Thessalonians 2, and then the lawless one will be revealed when the Lord Jesus will kill, who, who the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. Did you see that? This Antichrist, this lawless one, is going to come with all power and false signs and wonders. I think I went a little bit too far, but I wanted to go to verse 6. I got to get better glasses now. And uh, in verse 6, 
And, and now you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. In other words, something is restraining the Antichrist right now. Something is holding him back. Oh, he wants to show his face. He wants people to worship him. He wants people to follow him. But he something, and we're going to find out next week that it's the Holy Spirit that's holding him back. And that Holy Spirit is going to be lifted up and taken away. And everybody that has the Holy Spirit within their hearts, the the body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit goes, guess what? Those that are in the in Christ that have the Holy Spirit within them are going to be taken up as well. And so when that happens, Antichrist is going to step out and says, you know, thank God for these Christians are gone. Are we admit, don't thank God. Thank goodness. Not even goodness. You know what? Let's just celebrate. Now we can do whatever it is that we want to do. Come on. And they're going to be, people are going to be so deceived and they're not even going to ask what happened. They're going to be saying, goodness, I'm glad they're gone. Now let's marry who we want to marry. Let's do what we want to do. Let's party like it's the end of the world, which basically is exactly what's going to happen. And they're going to be so excited, so joyful. And, uh, well, we're getting into further teachings and whatnot. But the great the great revealing, uh, the one that is coming. There have been a lot of antichrists in the past, people that were looked at. And this antichrist, he's been known by many people, the lawless one. Uh, he's also the, the Gog of the land of Magog, uh, the Prince Arash, Meshach, and Tubal in Ezekiel 38. He's also the little horn. We're going to look at that today, uh, Daniel 7, 8. Also the prince who is to come in Daniel 9. The king who does as he pleases, uh, Daniel 11. The foolish, worthless shepherd in Zechariah 11. And the beast in Revelation chapter 11. And so this Antichrist, this lawless one, has been called many names. And it is John, as I said earlier, that is going to, that has already identified him as Antichrist. Antichristos, uh, the Greek word in 1 John 2.18, Antichrist. And so in Daniel chapter, uh, in your outlines, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. Now, here's some of the things that, uh, you know what, I jumped ahead once again. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, one of the things that Daniel is talking about, he, here he's talking about the end times. He's talking about what's going to happen in that day. He's, going to talk, he's talking about these things that are going to take place. And now he is focusing on the Antichrist at this point. And he says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things, which is describing him as the little horn. And you may have heard this before about the little horn, the big horn, and, and uh, all these different types of... And, and the horn usually has to do with power and authority. And this little horn who rises out of obscurity and prominence, describing himself as the, and he has these eyes like the eyes of man, uh, indicating his intelligence and a mouth uttering great boasts, a reference to his, uh, his, his speaking skills and how he's able just to, to woo people over with his voice. And in verse 21, uh, it says, as I looked, the horn made war with all the saints and prevailed over them. And then in verse 23, it says, Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. That was verse uh, 23. His empire is going to be like no other empire in human history. You may have heard of many of the things that are going to happen during the end times. And what this little horn, this uh, lawless one is doing is he's raising up an army. He's even doing so even now. 
in uh, 725, he says, And he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and a half, and a time. In other words, for three and a half years. And uh, in Revelation 13:5, it says this, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months which is the three and a half years. And so the three and a half years of the tribulation, all of this is happening at the end time, at the end of the tribulation. And then in 726, this is, but the court shall sit in judgment and his domain shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. So this Antichrist that is coming up, this Antichrist that is raising up, this, this person that is going to be doing the work of Satan, he is going to be, uh, he's going to be in power. He's going to unite. He's going to bring people together. He's going to, he's going to, first of all, establish a peace for the first three and a half years. He's going to establish this, this time of unity and peace that the world has never known. Israel is going to love them. The United States, everybody's going to love them and love him. And he's going to just make things better. He's going to make everything, the whole world better. He'll make everything better, not just one nation, but the whole world together. And they're all going to worship him and they're all going to love him. And then he's going to do what, uh, what the Bible says, uh, what Jesus Christ said, uh, what's going to happen like Daniel had predicted, that there is going to be the desolation, uh, the, the, the abomination of desolation. In other words, where he sets himself up in the middle of the temple and he says, I'm God, worship me. I'm the one that you are to worship. And so at that point in time, those that are left behind will be instructed to either bow down and worship this being, this beast, because it's not going to be the Antichrist per se. Antichrist is going to have a sidekick. He's the false prophet. And this false prophet is going to develop and do something and place this being, this idol, this image in the temple. And this image is going to be given a voice to speak. You know, a long time ago, people thought, how's that going to happen? Well, today with AI and just about everything else, you know, holograms and whatnot. I mean, it's, it's possible now. It's possible that an inanimate object, people can make this thing talk if you have enough filters and cameras and whatnot. And this image is going to be speaking boastful things. And the Antichrist is going to tell the false prophet to tell everybody to worship this beast, worship this thing. And if you don't, guess what? Your life is going to be required of you. And that's where the Christians that are left behind are going to have to make a decision. Either I worship that beast and live or give my life for Christ at that point in time. And this rebellion, this, this rising up of this beast, uh, uh, let, me, let me jump over to Daniel chapter 11. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, he, he's, there's a lot of things that is said about him. But this is somewhat of a, uh, something to look at. And it makes sense now. It probably didn't make sense back then. But it says here in Daniel eleven thirty-seven, 37, He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any god, other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. The New American Standard of this portion of Scripture, because the English Standard Version doesn't quite capture it the way the, uh, the Hebrew was written, but NASB does. He says, He will show no regard for the gods of his father or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all." Many people have taken this portion of Scripture and they've applied it to the Antichrist and they said, you know, this Antichrist more than likely is going to be a homosexual because he doesn't desire women. More than likely, he's not, he's not that type of a person because he, he, is, he is so 
filled with this evilness and this ugliness, then more than likely that's, that's where he's going to be going. He's going to be going in that direction. The last verse that I want to point you to is in Hebrew, Daniel 11.45, and it says here, And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And this is why Paul says, and, and we don't know what it was that Paul taught, but if he taught about the lawless one, more than likely he went to the book of Daniel. More than likely he says, look, this, these are the things that are going to happen. And Daniel's already prophesied it. And I don't want you to be concerned and worried about these things because those things have to happen. And then what's going to happen with him is he's going to set himself up in the temple and he's going to uh, be able to worship himself. This, that has already happened. It's happened once before. And, um, and, but, you know, and so many people thought maybe it was at that time that, that, was going to, that when Jesus Christ is going to return. But he didn't get to the point of what Antichrist is going to do. Number four. The fourth thing that has to happen, not only does the lawless one have to show, first of all, there's a deception. Second of all, there's a great uh, rebellion. Third of all, there's a great uh, revealing of uh, the Antichrist. But the fourth thing that needs to happen is the rebuilding of the third temple. The rebuilding of the third, third temple. And this Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we know now, many of you probably know this already, and I kind of alluded to it a little while ago, the Jews don't have a temple. They did. They had a temple during the time of Jesus. They had a temple during the time of Paul. Paul wrote this probably in 50 A.D. But in 70 A.D., the temple was totally destroyed. Jesus gave this prediction in Matthew 24 too, and he answered them, You see all these? Do you not? Talking about the temple. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This was a massive temple. It was huge. And it was lined with gold on the inside and out, in between the mortar. It had gold artifacts. It had everything was brass and colorful and beautiful. It was just a beautiful picture, a beautiful building. And the disciples looked up to this huge building. How in the world is, no, it's not going to happen. How can that happen? And I'm sure that after Jesus Christ died and ascended into heaven, and the apostles started going throughout the country, throughout the world, preaching the gospel. Somewhere along the line in 70 AD, they heard about the temple being destroyed. And they probably thought back, I remember Jesus Christ said, not one stone will be left upon another. Did that happen? And the reports probably came back and said, yes. And you know why? Because gold was laid inside of those stones. And so the Romans and those that came in to destroy the temple, they, took, they tore it all apart. Down to the ground. And so... Since that day, and remember, since that day, the Jews have been out for 1,900 years, as I spoke a little while ago. They just came back in 1948. They fought for the land. The Dome of the Rock was built, which is the Dome of the Rock is the mosque, is what they call it, for the Muslims, was built over the side of the temple. And this Dome of the Rock, this mosque that is there, it, 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 you cannot build on top of this temple. So what the Jews did when they came in, they got Israel, the Israelites came in, and they got Israel, they wanted to keep the peace. They said, okay, keep your religious buildings. You know, we know that this is ours, but keep it. We'll, we'll work with that. We'll, we'll do something. And so that part belonged to the Muslims. And Transjordan is what it was. But that belonged to the Muslims. And then there was a war in 1967. And so Israel took over that whole place, uh, East 
Jerusalem and West Jerusalem became one. And, uh, and so they took over. And that's one of the reasons why Jerusalem was never a capital until just recently. It was built to be a capital. And now Jerusalem is the capital. But Israel now owns that place. However, they backed off again and they said, you know, you guys can run your mosque here. It belongs to us. This whole area belongs to us. And we understand that this mosque was built a long time ago and you guys can hold it here. The reason why this war that's going on right now is very important is because Hamas and all the other Arab nations have committed themselves to annihilating the Israelites. They want to annihilate and kill every Israelite. Israel has come back and says, you know what? We've tried. We've tried. We've tried to hold peace, peace, peace. We've given them this portion of the land. We've given them. We, we even gave them uh, the, the mosque. You know, it's theirs. And so, so now they are on a crusade to eradicate all of Israel of Muslims. Or not Muslims, but at least Hamas at this point. And it is very... It's, it's hard to understand. It's difficult to try to see. Why, now, why would Israel want to do that? Why would they want to annihilate? And all we're hearing is all the bad news, that they're, they're killing children, they're killing babies. Israel is torturing the people. And, and all we're hearing about all the destruction that they're doing. Un, unfortunately for many people, they don't have the whole history of what is, Israel's always been there. That's always been their land. And these people have claimed it. And so there's always been this war. At the end time, at the end time, this great revealing has to happen. All you know, the, the 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 rebellion has to take place. The deception has to take place. But what's what ha- what is the 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 whole point of this portion's sermon today and this message is that when Antichrist comes, he has to have a temple to set himself up in. He's going to stop sacrifices, according to Ezekiel. He's going to uh, set himself up, as Daniel said, to the uh, desolation, the abomination of desolation. He's going to set himself up in the temple where nothing else can be there except for the Jewish artifacts. And so in, until before that can happen, that temple has to be built. That temple has to be built. Right now, today, we have um, people that are out and about uh, in, in Jerusalem. I'm casting, if that's okay. Okay, you have to set me up there because I'm going to cast right now. All right, there it is. And this is just for your information. It's not necessarily something that uh, if you want to go there, it's called the, the Temple Institute uh, org, Temple Institute.org. And uh, this, this right here uh, is what the homepage looks like. The homepage will give you some information on who they are and what they're trying to do and, and how it is that they're what they're trying to do is right now is they're building everything together to be able to build that third temple. And their statement of, statement of principle says, the number one, the Temple Institute is dedicated to all aspects of the divine commandment for Israel to build a house for God's presence. The Holy Temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. The range of the Institute's involvement with this concept includes education, research, activism, and actual preparations. Our goal is firstly to restore temple consciousness and reactivate these forgotten commandments. We hope that by doing our part, we can participate in the process that will lead to the holy temple becoming a reality once more. God didn't instruct them to build that temple. According to them, yes, they need a place where God can reside. Okay, like like it says, like it says right here, uh, where where uh, they can have a house for God's presence. You see, God's presence now is in you. We don't need a temple. The temple is not needed. 
because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ has died once and for all, the sacrifice for sin. And what what they are wanting to do is build this temple because of their ability to be able to sacrifice because they don't have this consciousness of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. We have reached out to them. We have evangelized them with the gospel message, showing them through scripture who Jesus Christ is. Many Jews do believe. They're called Messianic Jews. And they still practice their Jewish customs, but they hold fast to the grace of God. One day, when Jesus Christ returns, all of Israel is going to, all of Israel, everyone, the whole world, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Just to kind of give you a little heads up of what's going on there. They have already uh, put together and they, what they've done, the sacred vessels. And what they have done is they have hired skilled laborers to be able to recreate the sacred vessels. Every vessel produced by the Temple Institute is done in accordance in accordance with the precise instructions that were first handed down to Moses, the vessels you're about to view are all fit and ready for use in the Holy Temple. They have the, the vessels, they have the artifacts, they have the, the epod, they have the candles, the, the, everything that you need is, is that they need. It's all built and ready to go. They even have instructions. They have architectural drawings. And, and it's going to be all state of the art. It's going to be the temple like before. However, it's going to have underground parking. It's going to have an escalator. It's going to be temperature controlled. There's going to be Wi-Fi throughout the whole thing. It's going to be cool, God. You're going to love it. You're going to want to hang out here all the time. And this is, this is what is in the mindset of Israel right now. They are ready to do this. Beloved, all I'm sharing with you is what is in play. This has been going on for some time. Uh, go ahead and take me off now. And so this is something that's been going on for some time now, that they're trying to rebuild this temple. And as I said earlier in Matthew 24, 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Reader, listener, understand that this is in its place to be able to happen. It cannot happen, this abomination of desolation cannot happen. This rising up of this Antichrist, setting himself in the middle, this is only for God, and this Antichrist is going to set himself up there. This cannot happen until that temple gets built, and that temple is ready to be built. The only thing that's stopping them is that that mosque is in the way. Now, if you happen to see that mosque, this war, happen to all of a sudden, that mosque is gone, don't hold your breath. It's going to happen. And we don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know how that's going to happen, but it will happen. And it's going to happen soon. And I just want you, I just want you to focus on, on point number five in your outline. We need to remember. We need to remember the Word of God. Paul says in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Over and over and over again. God says, remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how you were in slavery and I freed you. Remember how I saved you from the Philistines, Canaanites. Remember, remember, remember. Do you not remember? You know, you know and, and this, is, this is one thing that we have to constantly be reminded of. Remember. You know why? Because we forget. <laughs> right? I mean, I do. I forget. And, and, you know, a lot of times people forget, even people within the church, and they start worrying. They start getting crazy. They start getting all kinds of, you know, hysterical and anxious, and they get sick and worried and worried and sick and sick. You know, you know, worriedness can actually, you know, people say, man, I'm, I'm worried sick. 
And that's exactly what can happen. Because being worried, some people tell me, you know, I'm a born worrier. No, you're not. You weren't born to worry. You ever see a baby worry? He might get mad because he's hungry, right? (laughs) Or mad because he's dirty. But babies don't worry. They were taught that. You were taught how to worry. And the good thing about being taught how to worry is that you can unlearn it. You learned it, you can unlearn it. You were not designed to worry, especially a Christian. I'm worried sick. Yes, you are. I mean, worrying gives you headaches, insomnia. Some people get depression, uh, intestinal problems, high blood pressure, sugar diabetes. Some, some, some point, point to a cancer as, as part of worriedness. Being worried. I mean, just everything about your whole life, you're just worried. And you're literally worrying yourself that I'm worried to death. It'll kill you. It'll literally kill you. People worry about yesterday, man, I just messed up. I can't believe I did that. You know, I wish I can change that. You can't change the past. People are worried about tomorrow, man. What about tomorrow? What am I going to do? You can't control the future. All that does is mess up your today. This is why Paul says, do not be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And he has to remind them again, do not, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Jesus' disciples were just about ready to go through one of the most horrific things, experiences that they've ever experienced. And he's having what they call the Last Supper. And this is the Last Supper only because this was the last time Jesus Christ was going to have it with them. And if you've been part of our community for some time, you know that right before Easter, we have what's called Seder, Passover. And we go through the whole Passover meal. We don't meet in here. We meet in the fellowship hall. And the great thing about that Sunday morning is that we get to eat right in the middle of the whole service. So I I pray that you can join us the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. And we experience the whole meal the way Jesus Christ did with his disciples. And we see how the bread, the the matzah, the horseradish, and the bitter herbs, and and how the lamb and the egg and everything kind of coincides to who Jesus Christ is and what he does. And then we see in that whole meal process, in the cups, the four cups, see, there's four cups that, of wine. We don't drink wine here, so I hope that doesn't deter you. Uh, but we, we, use, we use grape juice, and we see how all those cups, they fit in the process of this whole Seder meal that God gave the Israelites to do on a regular basis from the time that they were taken out of Egypt. And for centuries, and so they want this temple, they desire this temple because they want to have Passover again. Now, We experience it only to show you what Jesus Christ did, how he took that bread, where he took that bread. The bread of affliction is what it's called, and it's and it's pierced with little holes. They don't know why they pierced it, and it's it's in within an afikomen bag, this this bag that has three layers, and and they hide it in the middle. They don't know why they do that, but they do, and they take it out and they break it. And Jesus said he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, "This is my body, which I do. Do this in what." Do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because we forget. And then the third cup, the third cup of suffering. And again, you know, they're having these, this meal and they're eating. They drink one cup, they drink another cup, and the third cup comes out. That's when Jesus takes it up and says, this is my blood, my blood of redemption. Come on in. We're ready. Do this, what? In remembrance of me. Why? Because we forget. And Every month here at North Park, we do what's called uh, the Lord's Table. And we take a sample of bread, and we take uh, some juice, and we bring it together, and we do this because Jesus Christ commanded us to do so. Come on in, kids. 
This is our children's department, by the way. And before we go into that, that portion of our worship service, it is, a, it is an act of worship of what we do. It is an act of worship of how we worship together in experiencing the Lord's table. Because Paul said this, and I'm going to read the, the last part. I'll read the first part here in just a little bit. But the last part, as after, he, after he explains to them, you take this bread and do it the way Jesus Christ instructed me to. Take this cup and you drink it because it's the covenant of my blood. And then he says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is one of the reasons why we ask the children, the parents, to please watch your children. We don't want them to take this until they understand what it is that they're doing. Uh, we, we have what's called open communion. That means that if you come from another church, you're open to participate in our communion with us. Examine yourself first and foremost. And the one thing that I want you to examine yourself with, number one, have you committed your life to Jesus Christ? Has He become the Lord of your life? Because this is designed strictly for the believer. Not just anybody can take this. The communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, uh, the Eucharist, that some people call it. The, the Lord's table, it, it's, it's not going to add anything to your salvation. It's not going to take anything away from it either. You don't get an extra blessing. Uh, our doctrine and our teaching about the Lord's Supper is that the bread does not literally turn into the body of Jesus Christ. And the blood does not turn into the blood of Jesus Christ. We do this because He commanded us, do this in remembrance of me. Why? There you go. Very good. That was a test. <laughs> Why do we do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ? Because we forget. We forget what he did on the cross. And we forget. Let me ask you to stand. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of scripture that Paul put together for the people in Thessalonica. But it was custom made for the, the people at North Park. Here in San Bernardino, this portion of San Bernardino, we come before you to, to recognize, number one, our sinfulness. We know that we need a Savior. Number two, we thank you that you've given us our Lord Jesus Christ that died on the cross for us, took our sin from us, and he placed it upon himself, and he took his righteousness and put it upon us. And for that, Lord, we thank you so much. And this morning, as we examine ourselves and we look at our life and, and how we are living, and, and Lord, we, we just want to honor you with our body and our, and our life. And we want to participate in this portion to, to honor you. And we know we can't deceive you. We can't fool you. And so I pray, Lord, that each person examines himself in, as they prepare for this portion uh, of the time of worship. Because this is not something that's going to add or take away anything from us. But we do this in remembrance of who you are and what you've done for us. So, Lord, as we move forward from this, this point right here, Lead us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, we're going to go ahead and go this way. Everybody in and straight to the back. We have prepared some cups. Mm-hmm.